I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is episode 19 of The Milkman of St. Gaff's, called Subversion. We're getting into the home stretch of season one, which will be 25 episodes in total. This is a serialized podcast, so if you're joining us for the first time, please start all the way back at number one. I would also like to thank two new patrons, Grace Kraus, Fly Sprayer, and Timothy Estabrooks, also a Fly Sprayer. Thank you so much for your support. I also wanted to congratulate Lise Kuhlmann for catching a literary reference in the last episode, Good Spotting Lease, and a belated congratulations to Luke Jordan for his promotion from Fly Sprayer to Milkman White Badge. Congratulations, Luke. You can find out more about how to support the show at HowieMilkman.com and on Patreon at Patreon.com slash HowieMilkman. And now let's get to the episode. It's time for The Milkman of St. Gaffs, starring Howie the Milkman. (laughs) 
I was in the middle of my rounds when I took a short break to really think about where I was. It was a beautiful day just on the edge of summer. A clear blue sky with puffy clouds here and there, a nice salty breeze wafted across the whole town. I looked up at a flock of birds and I used my imagination to imagine what the town would look like to a bird swooping down from the clouds. First he'd see the tower of the bluish-green church that would look a bit like a whale from the air. He'd hover over the downtown with the police station and the nice hotel, the liquor store. He'd see the people on the hotel rooftop having fancy drinks. He'd dip his wing at the freshly shaved men sauntering out of Mel's barber shop. He'd take a deep sniff of the smells coming out of Granard's fish stand. Then he'd float over the hills of the town, all the pastel blue and red houses, with their neat and tidy little lawns and gardens. Then he'd fly by the giant ship they were building, and he'd hear all the workmen hammering away happily in perfect rhythm. Up and down the pier, he'd smile at all the seagulls there. He'd stop at Lapham Square and have a nice long drink from the fountain. He'd pass the filling station on the edge of town, with the crotchety old Mr. Neumann fumbling with the pump. And then he'd climb high as he traversed along the shore, past the fisherman's house where Travis was performing some weird religious ceremony, and where Naomi was staring out her window at the sea. I felt really lucky to be part of this little community. More and more, I felt like this could be home. I was just about finished relieving myself on Mrs. Noseworthy's flowers, when the old bat came running out of her front door. What in God's name are you doing? I had to go somewhere. It's the same as watering them, right? <gasps> you filthy animal, get out of there! I jumped out of the garden as she was trying to grab me. Sometimes these things can't be helped. You should really have more respect for those of us in the service, missus. In the service? If my son were here, he'd have your hide for saying that. She was always going on and on about her son, who was a corporal in the war. I decided the best way to handle her was to stay calm and professional. We were both out on the sidewalk now. If you're dissatisfied with my performance, you can go down and lodge a formal complaint at the station. Just go in the front door and Beaver should be there. You can talk to him. A worried look flashed across her face for a second. Then she clenched her jaw. By this time, Mr. Noseworthy had come out, too. What's going on? Nothing, she said. Then she shook her finger in my face. I know what you people are up to. You milkmen don't scare me. I really didn't know what she meant, but she and her husband went back inside and I got back in my truck. I couldn't afford to waste any more time. As I continued my deliveries, my mind drifted back to my conversation with Corwin a couple of days before, when he picked me up with his milk truck. I hopped in on the passenger side. I'd never seen Corwin driving, and I didn't know if I was in some kind of trouble, or if he maybe had some good news for me. We drove a couple of miles to the tall, sheer cliffs a couple miles north of town. That's the opposite direction from Travis's house. There are some benches there, and I followed Corwin to one of them, and we both sat down. He still hadn't said anything, but then he did. I wanted to have a chat with you away from the other milkmen, Howie. I know you've seen... things. 
and that you might be confused. I know you were in Afterglay and that you might have seen the experimental farms. It goes without saying that you will not speak about these things to anyone. Then he turned and looked right at me. I've watched you work, Howie, and what I see is a young man who was born good with tremendous potential, but he was born into hard circumstances, probably to parents who either didn't have the time or the ability to see that goodness or that potential. You probably had some hard knocks as a child, and over time, all that was good in you was covered over with the detritus of the world. And you felt as though you were alone, that no one really understood you or what you were going through. I think you felt lost. But something drew you to us, something you may not even be able to articulate, brought you to join the milkman. I can tell you, Howie, that it was no accident. Somewhere in the back of your mind, you had an inkling that the milkman had something you were looking for. You already know that being a milkman isn't just a job, it's a calling, and I firmly believe that you felt that call, Howie. There is, of course, the camaraderie, the knowledge that you're doing important work for the community, but the milkmen are more than that. We are a fraternal order, an ancient fraternal order of men just like you. Many milkmen remain milkmen all their lives. They do good, important work, they support their families, and that is noble and good. But for those who have the desire and the capacity to make more of themselves, we offer a path forward. How far you travel on that path is entirely up to you. I'd like you to consider this conversation as a formal invitation to become an initiate in our right. The Department of Lactic Affairs is a repository of the most ancient wisdom known to man. Our founder, in more modern times, has found a way to harness that wisdom by using the techniques of modern science to uncover the true natural laws of the universe. You see, the central goal of mankind is survival and prosperity. These are things that all men want. In order to achieve them, Man must know how to manipulate and organize his environment to suit his needs. The way to health, sanity, and success lies through correct principles of organization and administration. These principles can only be learned through years of study. Moreover, this knowledge cannot be made available to the uninitiated. As milkmen, as men with real knowledge and real know-how, we have a responsibility to step in and help out where knowledge is lacking. The purveyors of chaos abound, Howie, even here in St. Gaff's. You've had dealings with the police, with Inspector Piercy. Do you really think we can leave the safety and stability of this island to him and his goons? If they had any competence at all, they'd be off fighting on the front lines. The government in Mingsbite is a pack of fraudulent lawyers who look out only for themselves. So we milkmen really have no choice but to take matters into our own hands. Howie, I believe that you have a gift. One that no one has yet understood. One that can be very helpful to our mission here. That is why I pushed you. 
perhaps prematurely, to venture alone underground. But I also firmly believe that once you've taken your first steps, and once you begin to understand, you will be able to return and complete your task. I have a book I'd like you to study. This is the first step on your journey. If you are successful, you will attain the rank of Entitled Apprentice. You will never mention any of this to anyone except other initiates. For now, on St. Gaff's, that means me, Frank, Beaver, and Walker. We milkmen alone know what lurks in the dark heart of this earth, Howie. But it is not given to just anyone to delve into that dark heart and pluck out the jewels that lie buried there. At this point, he took out a small book, maybe 50 or 60 pages. It was worn and old-looking. Read this, Howie. Read it carefully. I'll be asking you about it shortly. And I must tell you that I was sent here to this island with a clear set of goals. Time is beginning to run out. If the thermalizer is not up and running in the next eight weeks, there will be budgetary cutbacks. We won't be able to justify the manpower we have here. We need the milk of Mammotha, and we need it very soon. Did you know, Howie, that there's a section of milkmen working at the front, delivering cream to officers in the trenches? I shudder to think about what life would be like in the trenches. Don't you, Howie? It was quite a conversation, and it took a while for everything to sink in. But today, everything was going great. I was feeling really lucky that I didn't have to be a milkman on the front, and that I had someone like Corwin looking out for me. After my deliveries, I went back to the milk station. Inside, Beaver was eating a fish sandwich. Granard's place had become a lot more popular after everything that had happened, and now Beaver was positively addicted. I dropped off my daily report and walked over to Stormy's place. She'd been in a good mood because her math teacher, Mr. Jenkins, gave her an A in math, even though she missed her exam. He said her term work was strong enough that she didn't even need to take an exam. So now she was looking for a summer job and we were planning for our future. On my way in, I stared with longing at the radio in the front yard, remembering with sadness the vacuum tubes that I'd lost. But Stormy and I sat on a bench in the backyard, sitting as close to each other as we could. We held hands and talked about this and that. She was warm against me, and I moved our hands onto her leg. I bet you could work with Granard. We're on pretty good terms, and I bet I could get you in there. I'm not working with food. It's disgusting. I'll spend all my time washing pots. Everyone has to start somewhere, and it wouldn't be forever. Why can't you just ask Corwin to transfer you to Mingsbite? I promised myself when I got out of high school I'd get off this island. They need me here for an important mission that I can't talk about, I told you already. And anyways, aren't you worried about leaving your dad here? My dad keeps talking about going to Elkhorn. He's sick of this place too, and what kind of mission do they need you for? I acted like I was annoyed, and twisted a bit to face her. But really, it was my subtle attempt to move my hand higher up her thigh. What does that mean? Believe it or not, they need me to do things that no one else can do. They can't get the thermalizer to work properly without me, because they need a special ingredient that only I can get. I can't tell you any more except that it has to do with top-secret cow farms 
and it's actually a classified military operation, and I actually have to meet with a group of generals next week. So for now, moving to... My hand was making good progress and was almost in her lap, but then her dad appeared with some biscuits, and in a flash, she threw my sweaty hand away. Hi, Howie. I couldn't help but overhear. Did you say something about the thermalizer in a secret cow farm? Oh, I was just joking around, Mr. Greenwood. We were actually talking about a story in the Law Runner. I knew something strange was going on down there, Mr. Greenwood said almost to himself. No, it really, it was a joke. As if a bunch of generals would meet with me, and I could get in a lot of trouble, okay? Don't worry, Howie, mum's the word. But he had this grim, determined look on his face that made me nervous. Dad, Howie really was just kidding. He just doesn't want to take me to Ming's bite. Oh, of course, of course. He seemed satisfied with that and left us. Stormy and I went back to talking about other things, gossip about her classmates. I didn't really know the people she was talking about, so I sort of tuned out and just watched how beautiful she was. With her black hair flicking back and forth, the little lines on the side of her mouth when she smiled, and her red lips that were as red as raspberries. Before I left, we kissed. My arms were around her waist and my belly was full of butterflies. Walking down the sidewalk, I kept remembering how her tongue felt against mine, and I figured maybe she was right. Maybe after this mission, and after the thermalizer was working, I could ask to go back to Ming's Bite. Maybe I'd introduce Stormy to my mother, and we'd be a happy family. After the war, we could go visit Mr. Greenwood and Elkhorn. I'd always heard about Elkhorn's giant gates, and all the futuristic machines they had in there. The Engineer's Utopia, they called it. Maybe Mr. Greenwood and my mother would hit it off, and we'd have a big cheerful family together. I picked up some dinner and the latest copy of the Tao Law Runner on my way home. Back at my building, I opened the door, walked into the little lobby, and the hairs on the back of my neck stood up. A small, red ball bounced slowly down the steps. I picked it up and looked at it. Definitely rubber, I thought to myself. Then a small boy, maybe eight or nine, came running down the stairs. I'd never seen him before. Hey, that's my ball! I threw it to him, and he almost caught it. Here you go, champ. I just moved in with my mom. It's good to have new neighbors, I said. I started up the stairs, and he followed. My name's Mac. My daddy's in jail. Oh, what did he do? He stole a loaf of bread so that me and my mom wouldn't starve to death, but they caught him and put him in jail. That's really terrible. I'm friends with the baker here, so if you ever need a loaf of bread, just ask. I'm Howie. It turned out that we both lived on the same floor. When we got there, Mac threw his ball and it bounced off the smelly carpet, then the wall, then back to him. My mom got a job working on that big ship outside. Good for her, that's hard work over there. My daddy's deaf in one ear, so he couldn't join the army. It was my duty, I felt, to pass on some wisdom to the younger generation. So before going in, I said, Listen, Mac, you see that door there? 
Don't ever bounce your ball off that door. And don't knock on the door either. There's an old woman who lives in there, and she's got a big stick with old ribbons and trash tied to it. There's no telling what she'll do if you disturb her, okay? Is she a witch? No, she's nice once you get to know her, but if you startle her, she might get upset. Okay, mister, thanks. I went in and sat down. I opened up the window and the wonderful sea air came blowing in. Work was done for the day over at the shipyard. I like to just look at the ship and imagine all the places it would go, and all the people it might kill in some huge naval battle. Maybe it would sink to the bottom and thousands of fish would live in it. It was almost finished and I couldn't wait to see them launch it out to sea. I warmed up some beans and a sausage while I was thinking about the ship, and the sea air mixed with the sausage smell made me feel like everything was right with the world. I felt more energetic and at ease than I had in quite a long time. I was going places and doing things. While I ate, I opened up the little book Corwin had given me to the first page. If you wish to make your plans become a reality, there are several steps you must first take. Your first job is to make an investigation into the basic parts of the business, the group, or government you wish to organize. Take a large sheet of paper and jot down the names of all the pieces of equipment you will need to get the job done. I was getting pretty sleepy after reading a bit. Maybe I was more tired than I thought I was, and while I was reading, I kept wondering about the new episode of Eliza Pike. I had the new issue, and I was supposed to read it with Stormy. But I figured it would be okay if I read the first couple of pages on my own, as a reward for working on my entitled apprentice degree. The story was a real page-turner. Eliza was facing her most terrible arch-enemy, Matilda Moonrose. Matilda drank whiskey and smoked big cigars just like a man, and she was always belting out these big belly laughs. In this episode, she'd stolen a school bus filled with school kids and wouldn't tell anyone where she'd taken them. After pursuing every avenue and examining every clue, Eliza was, for the very first time, stumped. So she went down to the whiskey bar where she knew Matilda liked to cavort around. She opened the door, saw Matilda, and shouted, Your hooliganism is at an end, Matilda Moonrose. But Matilda threw a bar stool at Eliza and a bar fight broke out in the bar. Chairs got busted across people's backs, broken bottles were smashed into people's faces, the bartender got his shotgun from under the bar and shot a couple of people. But the fighting was so intense no one even noticed. In the end, Matilda escaped, leaving only a handkerchief with the letters D-U stitched onto it. The episode ended with Eliza on the roof of the bar, looking out over the city skyline and looking at the handkerchief and vowing to rescue the children and to bring Matilda to justice. Wow, the story was getting really intense. I looked back at the book Corwin had given me, the Correct Principles of Administration by R.F. Boswell, G-M-D-O-L-A. I decided I needed more of a break before plunging into the book again, and it was a nice evening, so I went out for a walk. The sun was down, and with the warm sea air and the darkness, I felt free. I walked along the pier, past the spot where they dropped Pyman in the water. My mind wandered back to what I'd remembered about my dad. I'd always blame myself for what had happened, 
but now I knew it wasn't exactly my fault. And that made me realize that I probably wasn't responsible for what had happened to Billings either. With these revelations, a lot of weight lifted off my back. It was like a wise man said once, a clear conscience is like being on vacation all the time. I ended up walking for quite a long time, all through the sleeping town. I was making peace with the past and a bright future seemed to be right in front of my face. I went home and fell into a deep, dreamless sleep. The next day I slept in a lot, groggy from staying up so late and sleeping so heavily. I heard the clock far down the pier strike ten. It was Saturday and I didn't have to work, so I threw on my civvies and headed downstairs. My plan was to go grab a sweet bun and tea at the baker's for breakfast. But when I got outside, I was really alarmed. There was blood all over the steps. I looked up and there was blood smeared all over the wall of the building across the road. Then I heard a scream down the block. A kid was laughing hysterically and chasing a teenage girl with a bloody knife in his hand. I thought maybe I was dreaming. I walked on. More blood splatters. A man walked by me quite calmly with blood stains all over his back. I was about to ask if he was okay, but then I remembered and gave up any hope of a breakfast bun. I made my way to church, joining a throng of bloody parishioners. Kids and teens alike were running in and out of the crowd with knives and axes, striking random people and laughing. One kid even ran up to me with a wooden gun. He squeezed a rubber squeeze bulb and sprayed me with sticky red liquid. I didn't mind, of course. Inside the church, I managed to find a spot on the last pew where Travis and Naomi usually sat, but they weren't there today. It was surprising because this was the fullest I'd ever seen the place. It was standing room only, and pretty much everyone in the place was soaked with blood. Stormy was sitting with some friends a few rows up, but I didn't see Mr. Greenwood anywhere. Then Whelan came out with red flowing robes. He looked really pleased. Everyone quieted down and he began. Welcome, friends, and happy whale mass. I see the young folks get more and more creative every year with their bloodletting implements. Today begins three days of celebrating and eating only meat in honor of the great whaler. And, as is customary, I will now recount the story of our glorious savior. The world is eternal. There are periodic floods or fires that wipe everything out. After the last such catastrophe, which was especially terrible, the great whaler and his family were among the only human beings left on a small island. There was nothing at all to eat. Fire had burned every plant. The waters had engulfed nearly the whole world. Twelve families alone had survived on this last piece of land. In his previous life, the great whaler, whose name we may not pronounce, 
was a pearl diver and a slave who would dive deep to find pearls for his owner. But now there were no fish. He dove again and again, deeper than any of the survivors could, but all he saw were rocks. In desperation, he dove down deeper than he'd ever gone before. Deeper and deeper he went, though his lungs were bursting and he could barely see in the murky depths. But at last, he saw a crack with light glowing through on the bottom of the ocean. He pulled and pulled until the crack gave way, and a pod of enormous glowing green whales came up through the spirit world. The whaler rowed one whale to the surface. He wrestled with the great fish for three days and three nights, stabbing it all the while with his purling knife. Back on the island, his family had given up all hope. His brother had taken up with his wife, as was the custom. But then they saw the whaler walk out of the sea, covered in blood and dragging the dead whale. Everyone helped to drag it up on shore. They cut open the belly of the beast, and it was full of seeds and nuts, the likes of which no one had ever seen before. The families gathered these seeds and nuts and planted them. They lived off the whale meat until the plants grew. The waters receded. They populated the entire world and harvested the crops. But in the midst of the eternal cycles of destruction and rebirth, no one had ever done what the whaler did. He opened a permanent passageway to the spirit world thus causing a diremption in the immutable order of the universe. His descendants were called the Seekers because they were the only ones who could catch the spirit whales and procure the bones above our heads and the oil with its nearly magical properties. Over time, his genealogy was lost, and the twelve families intertwined and became one. The Seekers dwindled and disappeared, and the time of the spirit whales ceased. The whaler, though, prophesied that this would be the final cycle, that the world would come to an end if ever the spirit world below enveloped the material world above. And although our modern scientists have come to challenge much of what the whaler said and our understanding of what lies beneath the earth, the story still serves as an important parable of self-sacrifice, the importance of family, and the ultimate impermanence of all that we hold dear. The sermon went on for a while longer. I'd never seen whale mass like this before. In Ming's Bight, these old-fashioned traditions had vanished long ago. The only remnant was that butchers made special blood-red sausages. I'd heard about the fake knives and the blood everywhere, but I didn't know any communities actually still did it. Afterwards, everyone trooped out of the church, leaving a swath of sticky red blood on the floor for poor Oscar the caretaker to take care of. Outside, I found Stormy. She was with Molly. Hi, Molly. Hi, Howie. I bet they don't do whale mass like this in Ming's Bite. They sure don't. Well, I'm sure you two love cats want to be alone. No, no, you don't have to go, Stormy said without much conviction. But Molly left, and Stormy and I wandered around the town, hand in hand. 
We came to the milk station. Billy on the wall had been repaired and repainted, but not very well. With his crooked smile and sloped face, he looked sinister and grotesque. And then I heard Frank. I don't care what you think you are doing. Come on, I said. We went around the corner to the parking lot, and there was Frank face to face with Mr. Greenwood. Dad? It's okay, sweetie, I just... You just what? I caught him snooping around the side door looking in the windows. Is there some law against looking in the windows? This is private property, bub. I don't want to see you around here again. Come on, Mr. Greenwood, let's go, I said. Yeah, Dad, come on. Mr. Greenwood gave us some nonsensical explanation, but I knew he was really trying again to get a good look at the thermalizer. And sure enough, when Monday morning came around, I was called into Corwin's office. I thought I told you to watch that Greenwood character months ago. Yes, sir, but I didn't find anything out of the ordinary, and then I guess I just let it slip. Well, clearly he's still a problem, and we do not have any time for civilian snoopers. The next few weeks are absolutely crucial, and we cannot allow anything or anyone to interfere. You will resume your investigation of Mr. Greenwood at once. He's on your route. But we will need solid evidence this time. The incident with Professor Florsham was sloppy. There were questions, and I don't want any more questions. Do you understand, Howie? Yes, sir. Between this subversion case and your other mission, you stand to advance quite far in the next little while. I hope you understand that. Absolutely, sir. And you remember what I told you about the milkman on the front. Yes, sir. Of course, sir. Thank you, sir. Good. Off to your rounds. Report back to me by the end of the week. After work, I met Stormy like we'd planned. We went over to Dr. Barrett's and visited with McMurdle. The pecker head was still just lying there doing nothing. I'm convinced that if I can just get more oxygen to his brain, he might stand a chance of waking up, the doctor said. He'd ordered some oxygen canisters from the mainland. I'd never even seen or heard of such things before. But the doctor said he couldn't figure out how to get McMurdle to breathe this stuff. You should ask Mr. Greenwood, I said. I bet he could invent something. That's not a bad idea, Howie. After that, I proposed hiking out to the cliffs north of town. It was a long walk, but the bench where I'd sat with Corwin was really a nice spot. And Stormy and I had some talking to do. We hiked along in the golden evening light. No one else was on the path. Stormy stopped at one point, looking out over the ocean. She raised her hands in the air and looked up to the sky. I wish sometimes I could just fly off and go wherever I want. I watched her, the shape of her neck as she looked up. I knew I'd never forget that. Howie, did you ever want to be something else? I mean, when you were a kid, what did you dream of being? I don't know. I don't think I had any big dreams. When I was little, I wanted to build things. Huge buildings, castles. You know, Stormy, I was thinking, maybe you're right. Maybe we should go to the mainland. Really? Yeah. We might have to wait a bit. I really do have a couple of things to do here. But if I do a good job, I bet it would be easy to get a transfer. 
I'll be on the path to maybe someday getting a good job with the department. On the bench we sat and looked out to sea. I was a little nervous to tell her what I had to tell her, but I grabbed her hand and turned to her. Stormy? I said. She turned to me with those big brown eyes full of expectation. Yes, Howie? I'm not sure the right way to tell you this, but Corwin's accused your father of subversion, and he wants me on the case. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.